0: You're listening to My Therapist Thinks, a modern mental health podcast. We're your hosts, Andrea Bozia and Mary Beth Somich. We are licensed therapists with a passion for making therapy accessible, relatable, and relevant to your life. Let's get started.
1: So we were going to name today's episode, How to Love Yourself. But it seemed a little cliche, so we went with love yourself, damn it, instead. There's also a little irony in that title because we're going to get into how being hard on yourself and utilizing negative self-talk can really get in the way of cultivating self-compassion and self-love. So in discussing how to love yourself, I think maybe we should first start with how not to love yourself and then work backward a bit. And I want to start that with discussing negative self-talk. We know you've heard it a million and one times,
0: but the way you speak to yourself matters. Absolutely. You know, that phrase of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me Mm -hmm. Uh, back in like grade school. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, I think this was probably a good pseudo defense mechanism that we were taught to remind ourselves like, oh, if someone says something mean to you, it's okay. Um, Pretend like it doesn't matter. But ultimately- It does matter because we can start ending up believing what that person is saying and then throwing those stones at ourselves, like saying those hurtful things to ourselves over and over again and not even realizing it. Yeah, definitely. And
1: when I think about this, you know, when you say how you speak to yourself matters, I don't think there's many people that would disagree with that statement. It's obviously very important. Yet in my office, it's these same people who have extremely critical internal dialogues with themselves. And oftentimes they're not even aware of it. It's something I am pointing out to them. So when we say self-talk, we're including the thoughts you're having that drive your emotions and your behaviors. So for example, just to break it down a little bit further, negative self-talk or thoughts that you're having in your mind might sound like, well, let's start with perfectionists. Oh, I messed it up again. I never get anything right. That's a very common one for perfectionists, particularly. Or if you're a procrastinator, I'm so stupid and lazy. Why do I do this every time? And some of my anxious clients might say, you know, I'm going to mess it up and ruin everything like I always do. Maybe I just won't even start. And then they get into that procrastination spiral or my depressed clients who really internalize the thought of I'm worthless. What's even the point? So I can't tell you the number of times that I will be sitting in session with a client, listening to their internal dialogue out loud and I start calling them out on it to their surprise and because often they don't even
0: realize yeah you know I lovingly joke with my clients that I'm going to purchase a water gun and then any time that they bring up a part of their critical self-talk in session. I'm just going to squirt them from across the room. Um, just like a little like, joke, like, oh, hey, this just happened. Um, and we always have a pretty good laugh about that. Because um, obviously I would never do that. But um, <laughs> negative self-talk can become so ingrained in one's internal dialogue that the person seriously does not even notice how mean it is anymore. Right? So, When we start talking about changing one's negative self-talk through cognitive restructuring or kind of processing through where these thoughts began, there can often be some pushback. And the most common theme that comes up in this resistance is, but then how am I going to get stuff done? Isn't that funny? Because those examples I gave were... The perfectionists
1: and the procrastinators and the anxious clients and the depressed clients. And none of those are really productive states mm-hmm. to be in. Yet that's the underlying fear is how am I going to get stuff done? And it I think it's based in this myth that motivation comes through bullying yourself. And we get that message in a lot of different ways, but it's, you know, a fact. Some people actually use harsh self-talk to bully themselves into feeling motivated. And I think about growing up as a child and having some really harsh coaches that kind of use this mentality, mm-hmm. right? Cheer coaches. Um, I played field hockey, so field hockey coaches, and I see football coaches, basketball coaches doing this, motivating kids really harshly through negative language or even shaming language and always saying, you know, you can do better, go harder. When this becomes your norm for motivation or sourcing it early on in childhood, It can really become something you carry with you and even punish yourself with. And then I think about some of my other clients and maybe they weren't big into sports, but since I do so much family dynamic work and also try to think through a cultural lens with my clients, I've recognized that tough love parenting that's more common in some specific cultures can often cultivate this motivation through bullying mentality as well. It might be something you heard your parents do and then learn subconsciously to mimic in your own self-talk and your own thoughts. I don't know. Do you see that in some of your clients too?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of fear around what would happen if I was kinder to myself. You know, would would that be a sign of weakness? Or would other people interpret that as weakness within me if I was kinder to them when they were trying to get stuff done too? I think. It makes a lot of sense to have resistance around that if you're so used to it. But what I remind people is that two people can get from point A to point B successfully. And from the outside, everything may appear the same. But internally, you know, person A feels pretty crummy, while person B can feel happy and proud and calm. So if there's a chance for you to complete your work, And, you know, do your best without belittling yourself in the process. Wouldn't you rather do that?
1: Right. And I'm thinking about the language that you use and the shaming that's attached to it and how that kind of brings you down into this stressed or depressed sympathetic or dorsal nervous state. And that's an inactive state. That's not like an energetic, productive state. So part of this kind of goes back to self-sabotage, which is what our first episode is about. So maybe even tuning into that for some more on that piece. But in
0: this episode, I just really want to hone in on that power of language. Yeah. You know, we have the choice to use words constructively, which means that we're using them in an empowering and encouraging way, or we can use them deconstructively in a harming or humiliating way. Think about it from this like classic cognitive therapy lens. I remind clients that we don't necessarily have control over the thoughts we have. Our thoughts happen oftentimes very automatically. So out out of our conscious control, but we do have control over the thoughts we endorse. So an example of this may be, you know, you might want to go shopping, but for the day you decide to go window shopping, (laughs) which means you're like, looking at the nice stuff and you're maybe like very interested in going in the store and purchasing that nice thing, but you decide to kind of keep walking. You're still looking at it through the window. This reminds me of, you know, you have a choice to buy your products just like you have a choice to buy your thoughts. You don't have to buy and believe everything that you think and you have the power to change the way that you're thinking by choosing what thoughts you actually metabolize and digest. I love that metaphor.
1: You've got some good metaphors lately, Andrea. (laughs) Right. I think it's all about, you know, the practice of speaking mindfully and language, having an opportunity to create an incredible range of emotions that can influence whether we love our lives or we sabotage ourselves. And that kind of brings us into self-fulfilling prophecy and the power of language in that our thoughts affect our feelings, which thereby influence our behavior. If you're telling yourself something, even subconsciously all the time, how are you bound to be much other than that? Right? Mm -hmm. Good point. So it can be just so limiting. So let's get into some ways. And I know you're I always think of you as like the cognitive person, like the thought-based person. So ways to recognize your negative
0: self-talk and some strategies to challenge it. One that I practice myself often and I encourage others to practice is acting as if. So that's when you give yourself permission to pretend that things are the way that you want them to be. (laughs) So I, I do this a lot with, practicing confidence. Some will say, I'm just really not confident in myself to get this done or to do this presentation or whatever it may be. And so we do a little bit of role play of what would it be like if you were confident? How would that feel? What would that look like? How do you think others would perceive that? And after we identify those main points, that person is kind of empowered to know like, oh, this is what confidence looks like and possibly could eventually feel like. So today I'm going to pretend like I am this confident, kick-ass person and I will act in that manner. Now, perhaps I won't feel that way yet, but I will act that way. And inevitably, our behaviors can eventually influence how we are feeling and how we are thinking. It can go both ways, right? Yeah, that goes right back to that self-fulfilling prophecy. The whole idea of fake it
1: till you make it sometimes Sometimes. and how that relates to imposter syndrome as well. Like, I don't feel like this person, but I'm going to just kind of like walk the walk
0: and talk the talk until I am this person. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think this can be extremely powerful. And then another strategy I use is moving away from a negative tilt setting goals. So for example, when I'm sitting with a client, we're trying to figure out, okay, what are the changes that you want to make in your life to live a more satisfying life? I'll hear, you know, I don't want to feel like such a loser. And when we're coming from, when we're trying to set goals from a negative mindset, we tend to do so in a belittling and punishing way kind of going back to like bully ourselves like I don't want to be a loser so I want to get better and I encourage people to create a shift and to within their language and to notice how could they reframe that to actually be more of an uplifting goal something that you want to strive for as opposed to something that you don't want to be any longer a way to rephrase I don't want to feel like a loser might be I want to feel content and secure yeah
1: reframing that into a more positive sentiment override. And I don't always want to feel like such a loser it doesn't give you much information mm-hmm. about that feeling or that issue, right? Like, what is it about like, what's making you feel that way, right? I want to feel content and secure in my work. I want to have a successful relationship. Those are
0: such, so much more specific mm-hmm. goals. Yeah, we're changing the narrative that you are telling yourself. You're remembering your goals instead of what's wrong and that you're ultimately in control. Yeah, I like that. It's important. Yeah. Well, let's take it one step further and be are you willing to be a guinea pig for me? Of course. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so let's go into a little bit of a should detox. You can think of this kind of like as a juice cleanse for the brain. So I actually found this strategy online on a Conscious Life magazine article, and I really loved it and I enjoy using it. So I figured I would share it with you today. Okay. So the first thing um, that we'll do through the should detox is to pick something that you would like to do more often. I should really make more time to prioritize exercise. Okay, excellent. So now you've identified something that you want to change but now let's replace that should with the word could. Okay. That's easy enough. I could really prioritize exercise
1: more, maybe do a bar class or take my dog on more walks. Okay. Excellent. So now let's replace
0: could with the word can. Okay. I can easily take a bar class online. Awesome. So now this introduces a shift in energy from could being in the future, something that maybe you envision yourself doing to can being more present moment of, hmm, this is more of a reality here. So now let's replace can with the word excited. Ooh, okay. I'm excited to take a bar class online. Excellent. So now we're thinking about this in a way that Creates more of a positive tilt. You've moved from it being neutral, but something that you're actually starting to have more positive feelings about. It feels more like a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now let's add because to that statement. Okay.
1: I am excited to take a bar class online because it will be a way for me to prioritize exercise in my schedule more, which is important to me. I'm going on here, which is important to me because
0: of the benefits of moving my body. Awesome. So when you did that, when you kind of expounded upon that, you reminded yourself of why you actually want to do the thing that you set out to do. And that Mm -hmm. in particular taps into the power of language that it's no longer I should exercise ugh, because I'm not doing it and that means I'm bad or I'm not good enough or yada, 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 negative self-talk to, hey, I'm excited about exercising because it will help me move my body and when I move my body, I feel better.
1: Right. This is so ironic. I, um, it reminds me of a workshop I did actually at a bar <laughs> studio and <laughs> yes. And it was about identifying your why and how to really get down to your deeper motivations for movement and exercise. So I I guess I appreciate kind of tapping into that and that opportunity again. Yeah, you know, it
0: reminds me of this quote that I've heard and I don't know who first said it, but it's it's not the mountain that we climb that wears us down. It's the pebble in our shoe. Oh, yeah. That sounds painful. <laughs> right. <laughs> It's about how do we kind of create obstacles for ourselves in many different ways. And oftentimes we create obstacles with because of the language that we're using, the critical self-talk that we're using. And unfortunately, we usually start using it because we want to make a change and encourage ourselves to, to do better, but it ends up wearing us down. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder... You know, are you the type
1: of person that takes your shoe off and empties it out and gets the pebble out of there to keep climbing? Or are you the person that's like, I'm not doing this. It's too hard. I'm going back. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So now that we've kind of talked about how negative self-talk affects us and just self-fulfilling prophecy and some ways to reframe your negative self-talk and strategies more positively, Let's talk about cultivating self-compassion because that's the overarching goal here in loving yourself. And we said, you know, people think that bullying themselves is motivating, but in reality, it's self-compassion that's motivating. And because I specialize in family dynamics, I can't help but frame this in the context of how we are parented. So if we're parented with shame, for example, you're so bad. What's wrong with you? Why did you do that? That language can really become stuck in our minds. And we start to self-parent ourselves with the same language as adults or even teenagers. It really starts in adolescence, reopening those shame wounds in ourselves. And shame does not get us very far. Like I said, according to polyvagal theory and somatic psychology, it's a dorsal emotion, which means that it brings us into this kind of depressive state, shutting us down um, in this unmotivated shutdown mode. So, However, if you're parented with compassion, you're more likely to develop self-compassion. And an example of this would be a parent gently explaining, you know, what you did wrong and then separating your behavior from you as a person. And maybe even going in a further step in providing some normalization around mistakes or missteps combined with some fair and natural consequences. I'm a big fan of like related or natural consequences because, you know. Everyone makes mistakes. (laughs) And so when we're able to learn and really thrive in this way, we can then rise up our autonomic ladder into a regulated place and experience authentic motivation rather than that motivation based in shame that doesn't get us very far. Um, So it's just a more regulated sense of self, a more creative sense of self. And this is the value and importance of reparenting work and therapy. I think reparenting work or inner child work can sound like really woo-woo to some people who may not fully understand it, but it's incredibly powerful to be able to have corrective emotional experiences in adulthood that can really restructure your ideas around shame. They can alter your internal dialogue positively and help you step into that place of self-love that we're discussing today. Yes.
0: That was really good. (laughs) Yes to all of that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I just want to like clap because that is extremely powerful being to being in a place where you're able to reparent yourself, to meet your own needs, um, because unfortunately, others just won't be able to meet our needs fully. It's just the way things are. But when we come from a place of self-compassion, we're able to meet ourselves in a different way. It just reminds me of the story of the second arrow. Have you heard of this before? No. What's it from? I've heard it in many different contexts, but I was trying to remember just now where I heard it first. And I think it was reading one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books. And he's, I, I believe he's a Tibetan Ooh, yeah. monk and he's written some beautiful um, short books on mindfulness and how to. Mm-hmm. I've read his stuff. Actually,
1: my husband, when he was deployed, read his stuff too. We did like a little book club. So it was really oh my gosh, fun. I, love I like that.
0: <laughs> I really do. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so maybe we should start that, right? Thich Nhat Hanh fan club because he's pretty amazing. Book club. Um, yeah. But he shares a lot about pain and that pain is an inevitable part of life. And that difficult things will happen to us from something really intense, like losing a loved one to the trivial of kind of like stubbing your toe and having to deal with the discomfort of that. Oh, that is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know, he comes back to that regardless of us trying to avoid these life circumstances or events, they will happen and they will create pain. However, the amount that we suffer from this pain is dependent on how we perceive it and then how we interact with it. So it's called the two arrows because the first arrow we experience in life is pain. But the second arrow is often plunged in by us. And that represents suffering. And ultimately, resistance to our pain leads to suffering. He is so wise. I know. <laughs> I just like sit there in awe and I'm like, What did I just read? (laughs) Yeah.
1: It's like I've tried to discuss this, a similar concept in session with clients, like when it comes to anxiety and the idea of living a situation twice because you're so anxious about the thought that it could happen, that you're putting yourself through that suffering before maybe it even has happened. So even if it does, you're living through that suffering twice. And so this really reminds me of those arrows, but he just Mm
0: -hmm. puts it beautifully. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a great point um, because I mentioned the story because it links into why it can be so difficult for us to be nice to ourselves. So we have gotten really good at placing the second arrow. We suffer by obsessing and blaming and worrying. We think of what we did wrong or how we could be better instead of leaning into our experience and acknowledging like, damn, that was hard or gosh, that was so embarrassing but I'm human and things happen. You know, people try to fix their pain by avoiding those hard feelings or using that pain to motivate themselves to do better in a really harsh way. But ultimately that will lead to self-loathing because it does not create space for self-acceptance.
1: I think the thought of space is really important. When I was listening to your examples, like, damn, that was hard or that was embarrassing or, you know, I'm human and things happen. I've noticed even a shift in myself over years of doing my own therapeutic work and like, yeah, that's kind of how I talk to myself now. I'm like, okay, this was the fact and it kind of sucks. And I, my feelings are totally valid and warranted. And that was embarrassing or Mm -hmm. that was really hard, you know, whereas I'm wondering if before and long ago, I might've been harder on myself and said like, oh, why did you do that? Like, you know, um, and just how different those things are and those experiences are and how much easier it is to get through the experience when you're kind of looking at it in a more objective and lens without all of that shame or guilt or any of it. Yeah. And acknowledging like
0: we all get embarrassed at one point or another in our life. Yeah. It happens. But when we can look at it and say, oh, yeah, that was embarrassing, as opposed to getting down on ourselves for why that event happened, it provides some of that space that you had mentioned is so important. And I think when we have space, then we can move towards that self-acceptance. And, you know, I, I know there can be resistance around that piece of acceptance, because sometimes I think it's misunderstood as succumbing to a situation, like if you were to accept what happened to you, that it means stagnation in one way or another, like you're just settling. But really that's not the definition of self-acceptance at all. It is a radical form of self-love and self-compassion. It's being kind to yourself. It's about adding more to your life. It's about stepping away from controlling the experience. And I actually have a blog post up on this and a similar topic talking about self acceptance for self improvement. If you're interested, you can check that out. Yeah, I need to check that out because that's a beautiful description of self acceptance. Thanks. I mean, I think it's it's helped me personally um, grow in that area in my life, and I think it's helped other people create a shift of like, oh, it's okay to love yourself. Like that's not a bad thing, right? I think some people might even associate it to like narcissism or things like that. And it's so it's so not, not at all. And Dr. Germer, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but that's how I say it in my head. Um, He wrote a book called The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion. And I've really enjoyed using this book as a tool through my personal work and through my work with clients. So if uh, anyone listening is interested in kind of learning more about how to cultivate self-compassion, that's a great place to start. in concluding,
1: we want you to recognize that loving yourself may not be something you just wake up doing every day right now, because it really is just that a path, a mindful path to self-compassion. So it can be something that you wake up and do in the future through the cultivation of that self-love. Thank you for inviting us into your day. We hope you enjoyed the information shared in this episode. As a reminder, this podcast is not a substitute for therapy. We encourage you to reach out to a licensed mental health professional to support you in continued growth. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when new episodes launch, to rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on Instagram at ABC Therapy and at Your Journey Through.